0: From WNYC in New York, it's America, Are We Ready? Our Thursday night national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Biden presidency. This is day 65. And today, the new president finally had his first news conference.
1: Rolling back the policies of uh, remain in Mexico, sitting on the edge of the Rio Grande in a muddy circumstance with not enough to eat, I make no apologies for that.
0: The southern border was a hot topic, so were voting rights and bipartisanship. He was really interesting on China and Xi Jinping. We'll play that clip and more with two White House correspondents as our guests and reactions from you on the phones. America, are we ready for questions and answers for the new president of the United States after the latest news? from WNYC in New York. It's America. Are we ready? Our Thursday night national call-in show for the first hundred days of the Biden presidency. This is day 65. Good evening, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer. Nice to be back with you tonight. And who heard the president's first news conference today? It's okay if you didn't. We'll play some key moments, and we'll talk to two White House correspondents to get their takes, And we invite yours. Our call in number is 844 745 TALK. Listeners, how did the journalists do? And how did the president do? Did you hear the questions you wanted asked? And did you get the answers you thought were believable or in good faith or in the interest of you and your family and your community? 844 745 TALK. 844 745 8255 this hour. Did he say the right things for you about the border, about voting rights, about bipartisanship, about the filibuster, about China, about Afghanistan? Those all came up. And about COVID-19, there was surprisingly little about COVID-19. But before we even get into the substance of the issues, I want to draw attention to the tone that Biden continues to set in very intentional contrast, it seems to me, to former President Trump. Listen to this question from ABC's Cecilia Vega at the news conference and how Biden starts his answer.
2: Just got back last night from a reporting trip to the border where I met nine-year-old Joseph who walked here from Honduras by himself uh, along with another little boy. He had that phone number on him. And we were able to call his family his mother says that she sent her son to this country because she believes that you are not deporting unaccompanied minors like her son. That's why she sent him alone from Honduras. So, sir, you blamed the last administration, but is your messaging in saying that these children are and will be allowed to stay in this country and work their way through this process encouraging families like Jose's to come?
1: Well, look. The idea that I'm going to say, which I would never do, that if an unaccompanied child ends up at the border, we're just going to let him starve to death and stay on the other side. No previous administration did that either, except Trump. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it.
0: The president, from his news conference, and with me now, our Associated Press White House correspondent Jonathan Lemire and McClatchy, White House correspondent, Francesca Chambers. Hi, Francesca, and hi, Jonathan. Thanks for coming on America. Are we ready?
3: Great to be here.
4: Thanks for having us.
0: And we'll talk about the border issues as we go, but can you each just comment on the tone the president was trying to set this afternoon? Francesca, would you like to start?
4: Well, at times, he did seem a little bit frustrated with reporters, I have to say, Given the the nature of some of the questions that he was getting, he, he wanted to talk about a few other things, and certainly, this White House wanted to have this press conference after the American uh, relief plan the rescue plan that he had put forward had been passed and so certainly, as you noted already, there weren't as many questions about that as I think that the president would have liked. That is something his administration is spending a lot of time traveling across America promoting right now, and that was reflected in what he said uh, at times. But but certainly, uh, he also did not yell at the press. He didn't call them then in the media. The people. He didn't mention things like fake news either.
0: And I thought he was trying to be, you know, Mr. Empathy and Mr. Compassion and sort of Mr. Humility in the way that he answered a lot of questions, though he certainly is confident in himself as well. Um, and before we get to to Jonathan, um, here's another clip of the surge of child migrants at the border, uh, on the surge of child migrants at the border, in which Biden asks us not to credit him, with too much empathy. He was asked if the thousands arriving at the border recently came because of a perception that he got elected as kind of a decent man, uh, and parents in Central America are trusting him with their children.
1: Well, look, I guess I should be flattered. People are coming because I'm the nice guy. That's the reason why it's happening, that I'm a decent man, or however it's phrased. That's why they're coming, because no, Biden's a good guy. Truth of the matter is, nothing has changed As many people came, 28% increase in children to the border in my administration, 31% in the last year of — in 2019, before the pandemic, in the Trump administration. It happens every single solitary year. There is a significant increase in the number of people coming to the border in the winter months of January, February, March. It happens every year. In addition to that, there is a – and nobody – and by the way, does anybody suggest that there was a 31 percent increase under Trump because he was a nice guy and he was doing
0: good things at the border? That's not the reason they're coming. So, Jonathan Lemire, could you fact-check the president's claim there that the surge that's happening now is no different from most other years, that it's mostly seasonal before the desert gets too hot – and it happened about as much as some years under Trump?
3: Well, there's an element of truth to what he is saying. There certainly is regular migration, uh, and it, is, it does tend to uh, peak in the, in the spring, or at least there are, are high moments in the spring. But there, there is more to it, certainly. Uh, you know, The president certainly made a point of suggesting that you know, he didn't want to be known as the nice guy here, even though he said he was flattered by it. But messaging is part of this from both presidents. President Trump, of course, we know. He talked very tough about the border, instituted some draconian policies, uh, you know, really cracked down on those border crossings. Uh, This current president talks, you know, much more about treating the people who are there humanely. uh, And also in his first days in office, made a point of signing a number of executive orders that did away with some of the harshest portions of President Trump's immigration policy, his border policy. Not everything has changed, of course, but a lot of it has. So whether they meant to or not, that signal was sort of broadcast uh, to the Latin American world. Uh, There had already been an increase, to be clear, before President Biden took office, but it's only accelerated. And his own administration will acknowledge privately uh, that they were caught somewhat uh, flat-footed and did not have the capability or the capacity needed
5: right now.
0: And one border issue, Francesca, is that Biden so far is not really letting journalists see conditions in the detention centers. What's that about? And how would you, as a White House correspondent, describe the Biden administration's transparency and respect for the press generally?
4: Well, one news outlet was let in and they were provided footage that they were then able to distribute to other news outlets uh, at a facility this week. However, that was not the facility in which the photos that we have seen of overcrowding and many of the concerns have been raised, and certainly reporters are still trying to gain access to those facilities. And the White House's response to this point has been that they're working on the issue and that they have privacy concerns, given that uh, there are children involved in these. There are also facility workers involved as well and that it's something that they are open to discussing, but the key word there is open to discussing, it is certainly not something that they have pledged specifically to allow reporters into all of these facilities, and that is something for the sake of transparency that reporters want to see. And it's not just uh, the media that's asking for this. At this point, there are key Democrats on Capitol Hill, including Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who have said that for accountability purposes, journalists should be allowed in.
0: Do you either of you, by the reason that this is in the children's interest for privacy, also for pandemic reasons, that they're not putting a lot more people in the space? Or do you think they're just trying not to look bad on TV? Francesca, I'll stay with you.
4: Well, this was also something that has come up in previous administrations, including former President Barack Obama's administration, when reporters wanted to see in. And of course, we now uh, know what those photos look like, and, they, you know, they've been around for years now of um, the kids, and, um, you know, Republicans have since used those to say that the former president put kids, you know, quote, end quote, you know, in cages, and so certainly for the administration there is a political calculus, always, any administration, about the images that are coming out of there, and it's notable that uh, a reporter did ask in a briefing recently if the president was happy with what he'd seen, if he thought it was acceptable what he was seeing, and Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, said that's certainly not the case.
0: So listeners, anything you always wanted to ask a White House correspondent but never had one over to dinner? uh, You don't get this chance every day. You've got two of them here, Jonathan Lemire from the Associated Press and Francesca Chambers from McClatchy. Or anything you want to say, about Biden's news conference today, his first as president, 844-745-TALK. Our lines are open at 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK. And Kadim in Philadelphia, you're on America, Are We Ready? Hello, Kadim.
5: Hi, hello. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I have a two-part question. The, the first part question um, is, was the Biden, Biden administration release COVID numbers on the number of migrants coming in regarding the number of, uh, uh, uh young, young people coming across the border who may test positive and may not test positive. And, and what are, and what are the, the what is the Biden administration thoughts, um, regarding, um, uh, you know, how this presents a potential security issue, um, in the middle of a pandemic, uh, you know, if, if, if we, if we don't understand, uh, what's happening in terms of, uh, Uh, individuals crossing the border um, um, that may be contaminated, that may be uh, testing positive uh, for COVID.
0: Kadeem, thank you very much. Jonathan, do you know the answer to that question? Has anybody asked it in D.C.?
5: Just today, in fact,
3: the Customs and Border Protection announced that they're not testing the migrant children who are packed into these border stations uh, for COVID-19, though a number of them, when transferred to other facilities, then are tested. Uh, and there was some reporting, I believe, from NBC today that suggested more than 100 of these children have tested positive. But at least for now, the Customs and Border Protection are not doing it as policy. And, Brian, I'll just add my two cents to your previous question about the optics of this. I think it's a little bit of both. I do think, look, there are privacy concerns for minors. I think that's, we all can agree on that. Uh, and there are COVID concern, concerns as well. There are guidelines that the Biden administration is trying to enforce. That said, that's also sort of a convenient excuse Uh, to not have uh, media there, to have more access to these facilities and see these conditions. And certainly, as Francesca just said, there are some lawmakers who've been down there recent days who have released photos, who've described in their own words just how how tough things are uh, in facilities that are more crowded with tougher conditions uh, than the one that one pool camera was allowed to visit.
0: And certainly the president today said this is not acceptable to him, and they're going to get a thousand of those kids out of there by next week. So he says, and they're trying, but he kept making the point that they're not doing this on purpose. Like the Trump administration, they're trying to deal with the problem. They're not doing it on purpose to send a message back home. We'll continue in a minute. It's America Are We Ready, our Thursday night national call-in show during Joe Biden's first 100 days as president. I'm Brian Lehrer here on Day 65 as we play highlights and take your calls on Biden's first news conference as president with White House Correspondents Jonathan Lemire from the Associated Press and Francesca Chambers from McClatchy. And listeners, did you hear the questions you wanted journalists to ask? Did you get the answers you felt were right or in good faith from the president? 844-745-TALK. There were two topics to my ear on which... Biden got the most emotional and revealed feeling the most strongly about. Uh, One was humane treatment of children coming to the border, as we've been discussing. The other was the spate of laws that Republican controlled states are passing or trying to pass. One just got passed in Georgia today to make it harder to vote based really on Trump's lie that there was massive voter fraud in November rejected by 60 courts of law and his attorney general, William Barr.
1: What I'm worried about is how un-American this whole initiative is. It's sick. It's sick. Deciding in some states that you cannot bring water to people standing in line waiting to vote. Deciding that you're going to end voting at five o'clock when working people are just getting off work. Deciding that. There will be no absentee ballots under the most rigid circumstances. It's all designed, and I'm going to spend my time doing three things. One, trying to figure out how to pass the legislation passed by the House, number one. Number two, educating the American public. The Republican voters I know find this despicable, Republican voters. Folks out in the outside this White House. I'm not talking about the the elected officials. I'm talking about voters, voters. And so I'm convinced that we'll be able to stop this because it is the most pernicious thing. This makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. I mean, this is gigantic what they're trying to do, and it cannot be sustained.
0: It makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. Wow. Francesca, were you taken aback by the content or the emotion in that answer?
4: Well, what also stood out to me was that he went on to say that he wasn't going to lay out a strategy on this issue in front of the uh, American public at that time. And then, you know, he was pressed on it later to say, well, given everything that you've said and if you think that uh, this is the case, why not get rid of the filibuster in order to get legislation on voting rights and immigration and some of these other things? But he wasn't quite ready to take that position yet today. He simply said that he would like to see a return to the talking filibuster and that he's open to, you know, additional filibuster reform to move his agenda, but he's not quite there yet.
0: Let's take another call. Gloria in Maple Grove, Minnesota. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Gloria. Hi. What do you want Lock? to say? Hi, hi, Gloria. You're on the air. Can you oh. hear me?
6: Yes, I have been listening to you all the broadcast, and there is a statement, about, you know, I heard, overheard that they are separating the parents from the kids. They are sending the parents back and keeping the kids. So it doesn't make any sense. You either bring them or you re- retain them together. You cannot. It's the same as separating parents and kids.
0: Well, I think it's actually not what they're doing. Jonathan, uh, fact check me if I'm wrong here, but I think the point that Biden was making today is if families are coming together, they're sending them right back together. And if single adults are coming, they're sending them right back. But if children are coming alone, that's the only circumstance in which they're letting them stay. Do I have it right?
3: You do, Brian. Uh, that, that's the difference here with this administration versus, uh, the Trump administration is they're not separating the parents. As you say, if they all come together, they all, they all will be kept together, but sent home. It's a, it's a children who's unaccompanied. They're the ones who will be put in these facilities and potentially allowed to stay.
0: Josh in Auburn, Alabama, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Josh. Hi. Um,
6: yeah, so I had a question regarding
2: the, uh, the, the, uh, press conference. So, why, do you, why is the president not given more access to reporters at the border? I mean, that was
3: one of the main complaints many people had
2: with President Trump
3: is that there wasn't much transparency and it was only after like, the
0: Josh, thank you very much. And Jonathan, we touched this earlier with Francesca, um, but Josh is asking for a specific thing on behalf of you and your White House correspondent colleagues, and that is a timeline for when they're going to allow reporters in. The president didn't offer one, did he?
3: No, he did not. Uh, That question was asked, in fact, today very specifically, and and President Biden said he didn't know uh, when it would be. He committed, again, to allowing more media access to these facilities. It has certainly become a real story here in the last week or two in particular. Letting a pool camera in is a fine first step, but again, it was only, it was to a facility that that even White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki noted yesterday was an aspirational facility, meaning that's what they want them all to look like, as opposed to how most of them do look like. The media still hasn't had access to those, relying on accounts uh, and photos taken by lawmakers. We, the administration has promised more transparency and more media access, and I think we have, to this point, we have reason to take them at their word. But obviously this is an important moment, and it's one, this is an issue that should be resolved as soon as possible uh, so the media can bring these images to the general public.
0: J.J. in Bonafé, Florida. You're on, America. Are we ready? Hello, J.J.
7: Hello. Thank you for taking my call.
0: Thank you for making it.
7: Um... Yes, I I listened to the, uh, entire, uh, news conference and, um, it's like night and day. Um, I voted for this president. I'm a hardcore Democrat, social conservative, and give a shout out to, uh, Jonathan. I listened to Jonathan and, uh, Joe on, um,
0: MSNBC, morning, Joe,
7: Joe Scarborough. Just right every mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, uh, it, it's so uh, refreshing to, to hear a president that's uh, presidential, uh, to hear someone that's not about themselves and uh, not sniping at the reporters, calling folks' names. And and I live in a—I'm uh, surrounded by uh, Republicans. This is a deep red uh, area, Um Florida Panhandle, I'm, I'm about 50 miles north of the Gulf of Mexico, mm-hmm. and it's uh, deeply conservative around here, so uh, everything, just about everything that lives and breathes is Trump.
0: Well, let, me, let me. me ask you a question, J.J., because the president made the point a few times in a few different ways today, and we're going to play one of those clips in a second, um, that he thinks, and the polls indicate, that Republican voters, even if not Republicans in Congress, are supporting a lot of his policies. Do you have any sense of your Republican neighbors on that point?
7: Um, uh, not really, but I, 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 I heard that part and, and, and I, I think he's, I think he's correct. Uh, I, I don't see folks signing up to turn in those, uh, $1,400 checks. <laughs> and, uh, uh, uh it's uh, uh you know sending them back or tearing them up or having uh uh bonfires and, and using the, the, the checks to, to start the fire. So uh I, I think I think a lot of uh Republicans if they were to admit it and be honest about it they, 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 they are for uh,
0: his policy, uh some his of his policies if not all J.J., thank you so much. We really appreciate your call. In fairness to Trump, he did support the $1,400 down the stretch, too. Um, But let me play a clip of Biden taking a step back and framing the big picture of his presidency as he sees it related to J.J.'s call. He defines his purpose-driven presidency here in his terms. But also, at the end, he gives a, a different definition of unity than getting Republicans in Congress to vote for his bills.
1: So, I'm running for three reasons. To restore the soul, dignity, honor, honesty, transparency to the American political system. Two, to rebuild the backbone of this country the middle class, hardworking people and people struggling to get in the middle class. They built America, and unions built them. The third reason I said I was running was to unite the country. And generically speaking, all of you said, no, you can't do that. Well, I've not been able to unite the Congress, but I've been uniting the country based on the polling data. We have to come together.
0: We have to. So Jonathan, your reaction to that, and I'm going to you partly because the caller who set this up is your fan. Um, (laughs) Your reaction to that and Biden's approach of governing over the heads of Republicans in Congress to voters from both parties?
3: Well, first of all, I appreciate him watching. Uh, it's an early start to the day. Um, I think that we've heard from the president, first of all, as candidate Biden, a real push at bipartisanship, really making the, making the the sales pitch that he could reach across the aisle, pull upon uh, these relationships he had with Republicans for decades while uh, in the Senate and then as vice president. Um, to this point, though, despite some outreach from the president and his team since he took office, it hasn't paid off with any votes. Uh, But the White House staff is very fond of pointing out and reminding reporters that the COVID relief bill, the $1.9 trillion package, which Francesca correctly noted, was originally going to be the point of this news conference. There's this part of the victory lap. Uh, This and then a joint address to Congress in a few weeks, uh, and it's been overtaken by events, which of course is the danger when you delay things like this. it that polls very well with republican voters and they that's how they're able to claim that it's sort of a bipartisan measure even though the gop lawmakers on capitol hill didn't support it but now of course it's only going to get harder uh the republicans didn't mount that much of a defense despite not voting for the covid relief bill they decided to focus on cultural issues like dr seuss and mr potato head they knew this was popular they didn't really go uh you know to the wall fighting this uh, but they will on the stuff that's coming up, gun reform laws, immigration, voting rights, and so on, which is why such a key element, maybe the key question of this news conference today, and it was asked repeatedly, was of where President Biden stands on this filibuster, which looms as an obstacle to getting any of this done. And he did. He opened the door. He didn't make a commitment. He didn't make a promise. But he opened the door, for at least in some cases, for, a, for it to be to overhauled, uh, to be done away with, which for a Senate institutionalist like Joe Biden is a big step. But aides around him have told us behind the scenes that the president believes he's been elected in a moment of crisis. He believes he's elected to do big things. He's taken to invoking FDR at times, looking around at the how much help the nation needs right now. And he's not going to let the filibuster stand in the way of enacting the agenda he was voted to put in place.
0: And the filibuster makes it uh, necessary to get 60 votes in the Senate to pass most most things, not just a majority of 50 plus one. And so it stands in the way with um, 50 Republican senators of a lot, a lot, a lot that the Democrats want to do. Bonnie in Rochester, New York. You're on America. Are we ready? Hello, Bonnie. Yeah,
8: hi. Yeah, the question I have, and it's partly a question comment on it, um, is that, uh, you know, given the, the situation in the border, given the fact that I think it's widely known, been widely known for a long time, that there are people who want to get into this country for many illegitimate reasons, for the conditions that we actually help make in, the, in Central America especially. Uh, so since that's so well known, it puzzles me, why does the media, uh, you know, go get down there, and, and I understand it's fair to want to see places and everything, but why do they keep... You know, pressuring the the same question uh, about how things are going on when you know doggone well why it's going on. And I think what is missing is why aren't they absolutely asking every person they question, and especially Republicans, why why are they not uh, coming together to to support an immigration plan, which is really what's needed. So you're you're using a kind of a play platform to get some attention, i.e., media, but you're not doing much to Keep the uh, agenda going as to what the solution is. We want solutions that are human, not just to keep on batting people around and say, "Oh, look at I, I got attention by saying I, I discovered somebody who who uh, you know had a problem and they they went miles and miles to get to the mm-hmm. border." It, we all know that we all have, you know anybody's on the heart has sympathy for it. But you got to do something, and the only thing stopping that is Republicans. So that should be the focus.
0: Bonnie, thank you very much. Francesca, do you want to? stand up for your profession or say anything in response to Bonnie?
4: Well, I would say a couple things. You know, first of all, when you talk about asking Republicans about these issues, certainly our colleagues who are on Capitol Hill are asking both Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill about these issues. You know, the president himself is a Democrat, and today it was a news conference with the president of the United States, whom we had not had an extensive opportunity, we being the press corps, uh, to question at this point yet and and really hear his thinking on what's ha- happening at the border and and some of these other issues. And certainly there are news conferences every day with the White House press secretary who speaks on behalf of the president. Um, but not just in this press conference today, but even in his recent interview with ABC News or, or uh, his CNN town hall, we've gotten to hear what the president's thinking is Uh, on some of these issues, and he's given more on on the filibuster, including on the border, for instance. You know, as Jonathan correctly pointed out, while the White House itself had not promised access to these facilities, the president himself said today when asked the same questions that the White House had been getting asked that he was committed to providing more transparency when he had his plan, whatever that will be, in place, and that he'll have more to say on it. So it was a different answer when he was asked the question.
0: Here is part of what the President had to say about the filibuster today.
1: With regard to the filibuster, I believe we should go back to a position of the filibuster that existed just when I came to the United States Senate 120 years ago. Um, And that is that it used to be required for the filibuster, and I I had a card on this. I was going to give you the statistics, but you probably know them. Uh, That it used to be that the that well from between 1917 and 1971 the filibuster existed there were a total of 58 motions to break a filibuster that whole time last year alone there were five times that many so it's being abused in a gigantic way and for example it used to be you had to stand there and talk and talk and talk and talk until you collapsed and guess what? People got tired of talking and tired of collapsing.
0: So, Jonathan, we have about a minute before our next break. Would that really change anything, in your opinion, if they had to actually talk constantly in order to keep a filibuster going rather than just invoke it?
3: I think it would make it a little harder to filibuster. I think that people you know, who cover the Hill and lawmakers think that it would make some difference but probably not enough. It would likely take a, the full abolition of the filibuster, the really overhauling the whole process, to get done some of the more ambitious items of the president's agenda. And there seems to be momentum building on the Senate for that. Senator Angus King, independent of Maine, the defender of the filibuster, wrote an op-ed today saying that he believes certain cases for voting rights uh, it would be worth changing. So they could even do Democratic it. Cinema and Manchin, those are the two to watch for.
0: Cinema and Manchin aren't there yet. They can do it issue by issue, like just for voting rights? Yes or no answer?
3: It seems that way. They're going to try to figure it out.
0: We'll continue in a minute. America, are we ready? It's America, are we ready? Our Thursday night national call-in show during Joe Biden's first 100 days as president. It's day 65. I'm Brian Lehrer. As we play highlights and take your calls, On Biden's first news conference as president, with White House correspondents Jonathan Lemire from the Associated Press and Francesca Chambers from McClatchy. And listeners, did you hear the questions you wanted journalists to ask? Did you get the answers you felt were right or in good faith from the president? 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. And let's go to May in Trenton, New Jersey. Hi, May. You're on America. Are we ready?
6: Hi, Brian. I absolutely love your show. Every morning I wait for it to come on. And when you have a guest host, I'm as angry as some people were when Johnny Carson did.
0: <laughs> Very kind. What
6: I, know, <laughs> what I want to know is, I heard that uh, Biden had given Harris the um, authority to try and take care of the situation down there. I wanted to know if our government is speaking at all to the leaders of these other countries where these people are coming here in droves, to try to figure out how we can make their lives better there and perhaps even send military if necessary to help um, stop the gangs that are apparently trying to recruit these young boys. And well, I just want to know what is being done about that, because if life is better for them there, they won't need to risk their lives
0: coming here. Right. And Francesca, that is part of the heart of the Biden strategy, at least what that's what they say. Right.
4: So what he is putting her charge of is the diplomacy with the countries that you're referring to, which, which are known as the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. And as part of that effort, it won't just be diplomatic. It is to look for ways to stem the flow of the migration to the southern border. He has tasked her with addressing what are known as the root causes of that migration. Um, he said today specifically that they are becoming, because of the harsh conditions, in their countries. He specifically said it's because of earthquakes. It's because of floods. It's because of a lack of food. He said it's because of gang violence. It's because of a whole range of things. And so, you know, one thing that he clearly wants to have done here is to uh, spend the, what he described as the 700 million plus million a year to change the life and circumstances and address the, the reasons why the migrants are leaving in the first place.
0: Let's go to another call, Terrence in Atlanta. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Terrence.
7: How you doing? Um, what I'm concerned most about is the foreign policy aspect of the Biden administration. Um, it seems to me I don't. I'm clueless as as to what his foreign policy is. And like the previous caller, I mean, if we're going to throw millions and millions of dollars at the at at the at the, at the, at the uh, southern at the southern border for the, in that triangle. What, what's to stop them from being still, you know, what's to stop them from taking the money and not doing what, it, what it's designed to do?
0: Thank you, Terrence. And Biden did address that at least briefly in his news conference today, saying when they used to give more aid to those countries under President Obama and there wasn't as much unauthorized migration to the border, that somehow they tried to send the aid in a way that bypassed corrupt leaders who might put it in their pockets I don't know if you can fact check that and say if that actually worked, but that was his claim, right?
3: Indeed it was. And that's what the President Biden is saying they're trying to do now, is that uh, just this week, in fact, uh, I asked White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki in a briefing at the White House uh, of this very question, like, how can you ensure that this aid doesn't end up in the hands of people who shouldn't have it? Uh, and, and the answer was that it's going to be sent to various organizations, uh, groups help fund, uh, or you know, on the ground there uh, that can try to help people and to try to make things better on that end of it. Um, you know, so therefore take away some of the causes uh, for people to who want to therefore leave their country. The push and, and pull dynamic, as much as the situation is improved at the border, it also needs to be improved at their home countries.
0: And Terence brought up foreign policy in general. Here's a clip of mm-hmm. Biden on China today. Biden is really interesting here, to my ear, in his assessment of his differences with Xi Jinping, who he says he was assigned to communicate with at length when Biden was vice president and Xi Jinping was not yet president of China. So I spent hours upon hours with him, alone with an interpreter,
1: my interpreter and his, going into great detail and very, very straightforward doesn't have a Democratic with a small d bone in his body, but he's a smart, smart guy. He's one of the guys, like Putin, who thinks that autocracy is the wave of the future. Democracy can't function in an ever-complex an ever world. So, when I was elected and he called to congratulate me, I think to the surprise of the China experts who were his people on the call, as well as mine, listening, We had a two-hour conversation
0: for two hours. Francesca, that's so interesting. And put in those big political philosophy terms about debating whether democracy or authoritarianism is better for the people. Like, Xi Jinping isn't in it just for his own power in an authoritarian regime, but he really thinks it's better. Did you learn anything you didn't know about Biden and Xi Jinping there? Like, like that they had that two-hour phone call uh, when Biden was taking office or, or about how Biden sees what's at stake in U.S.-China relations, maybe compared to those that Trump saw?
4: Well, we did know about the two-hour phone call prior to this. And um, the story that he told about Xi Jinping is largely one that he has told repeatedly uh, since, while, since and while running for office. But what was new and interesting, and to put a finer point on what is Joe Biden's foreign policy, is Competition, not confrontation. That was what he went on to say that he described to uh, President Xi that he would like to see. And he did reveal also that he plans to have a gathering of democracies about the path forward, about the way forward uh, in the United States. He didn't say when that would be, but that is something that seemed to be new there. And he also said that, you know, this is an anti-Chinese effort. He was very clear about that. But it is a pro-democratic effort, democratic with a small d.
0: Julie in Brockton, Mass. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Julie.
4: Hi there. Um,
6: uh, anyway, about the border and all this, I often wonder over the years I've been listening to the uh, different uh, shows, radio shows, I wonder why no one gives a, a two, or it doesn't seem like it about our homeless people first, and then, I mean, they're living under bridges and everything. I look in the internet, it's kind of weird, it's kind of strange. And, I mean, we have so many empty buildings, even where I live since I moved here 30 years ago. The same buildings are empty. Um, you know, <clears throat> I just wonder why that not many people talk to help our homeless and then get those young people out there Making gardens, building things, and helping other countries and other people come in and uh, help with gardens and all this. I, I, people don't seem to make any sense at all. I don't and, know. Where- and
0: then, Julie, in the scenario that you paint, comparing um, helping the homeless people in the United States first before helping these young people who come un- unaccompanied to the border. Once they arrive, what would you have the U.S. government do with them? Have you thought it through right, to that this degree? is the
6: problem with that. Okay, listen, I've been a mother for 50 years, okay? Mm-hmm. My boy's 50. I got married very young. No mm-hmm. one taught me about abstinence and all that, which they should teach the little girls <laughs> and the little boys in school about. Well, that would help, number one. Because if you teach the children about the, the best thing in their life, the good they have, then they would, they would, they would make, they may treasure that. But see, some people never know about that stuff. Some of us never got uh, taught about that. I are going off on a tangent but from point, no, to the board. But I'm just saying, you got to keep the population. Uh, you know, in, in America, we have homeless, okay? We have little children, homeless children, uh, single-parent children, Children who uh, abused in all kinds of ways. But we have to, and I know people help them. Believe me, I know because I live in Brockton, and I and I visit those places. People, you you people really do help, and that's awesome. They give uh, plenty of clothes, and they really do give food and everything. I see this all the time. The churches do their part and everything. But the point is, that's what I'm saying. We really need to help our American children first. And and we, we, God loves everybody, but you got to take care of. You, you have to make yourself strong before you can help someone else. Don't you think that?
0: Uh, uh, oops. Their well, children, it, how are you going to help me if you don't feel good? Julie, thank you so much. Jonathan Lemire, um, she's kind of framing it as a critique of taking in a lot of migrants from a sort of liberal perspective. Like, uh, it's not just we don't want these people here. They're destroying our country, like Trump might say. But it's we have such a problem with homelessness and poverty in the United States we have to help those people first. Does, does this come up ever among Democrats or progressives?
3: Well, I think it does. And I think the White House would quickly point to the fact that so much of the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that just went into law uh, has anti-poverty measures, that there is effort there to help people at home uh, to, to recover from the pandemic, to be sure, but bigger than that. And that's something that progressives have pushed this president to do. And as much as Biden has at times signaled to them to, to be patient, and that's, you know, a difficult request on occasion, uh, there is an appetite here from Democrats to go big. Now, of course, we can rehash the whole debate with the filibuster and Republican opposition, uh, but this is something that, that, that comes up. There is acknowledgement, uh, and of course, particularly in this very hard year. In america that a lot of people are suffering and people slipped into poverty and there are encouraging signs the economy starting to bounce back and, and there are predictions that could really be roaring back by year's end but of course will that recovery be stratified like it was after the great recession of 2008 2009 uh, and this white house at least for now says they're going to try to make sure to remember uh, those at the bottom of the ladder as well
0: now something that trump left biden with is a may 1st deadline to get all u.s troops out of afghanistan it's only been 20 years But with the Taliban still strong there, he was asked, will he meet it?
1: But the question is, how and in what circumstances do we meet that agreement that was made by President Trump to leave under a deal that looks like it's not being able to be worked out to begin with? How's that done? But we are not staying a long time. Do you think it's possible that we... We will leave. The question is when we leave. Sorry, do you believe, though, it's possible we could have troops there next year? I I, I can't picture that being the case.
0: Biden there. And Jonathan, I'm going to go back to you because that included a follow-up question from your AP colleague, Zeke Miller. If Biden can promise things will be safe enough for Afghans after... 19 and a half years by May 1st, how can he promise that they'll be safe enough after 20 years, a few months later?
3: Yeah, that's a. It is a difficult thing to reconcile. And a monumental answer. I mean, as you say, you, you know, so with a with note of humor, but it, it has been 20 years. And, and the troops overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan was so much of then Vice President Biden's portfolio, uh, during the eight years of the Obama administration. He, we know, of course, his son, Beau Biden, was a veteran. Um, this is something that is a very personal issue for him. He talks about how the, the taking care of the troops as commander-in-chief is perhaps his most sacred uh, mission as president. Um, there is a delay here. He, he has suggested they're not going to make that May 1st deadline, but it would certainly require to get out by, let's say, January 1st so to prevent that 2020 rolling into 2022. That's going to be a busy six, seven, eight months uh, to ensure that that happens. And a lot of work would have to be done there on the ground. At least at this point, the administration has not outlined much as to what it has in mind.
0: Hey, look, we have a caller who says he staffed a filibuster in the Senate. It's Mark in Norfolk, Minnesota. Hi, Mark. You're on America. Are we ready?
2: Hi. How are you? It helps to be old. You get vaccinated and you have a long memory. Uh, <laughs> Tell us your story. Living filibusters were hell. I mean... When Howard Metzenbaum, who I was working for, tried Democratic to. Democratic senator from Ohio
0: at the time, right?
2: From Ohio. From Ohio at the time. Headline Howie, uh, a great liberal senator and fighting against deregulation. We put on a live filibuster. It was a grind. We almost killed a couple of guys. I'm talking about the older senators because they basically have to be near the floor. They put up cots in the, uh, in the cloakroom. It's hard tagging people to speak continually to occupy the floor. It requires organization and commitment. The other thing that people forget is it stops the business of the Senate. Nothing else can happen. Which means if you want a bill dealing with offshore leasing, if you want a bill dealing with emergency relief, nothing happens. When Mansfield went to the faux filibuster, uh, it allowed the business of the Senate to continue It took it, and took the pain away from the filibuster. People would vote cloture because they had bills they wanted to get on the floor.
0: The faux filibuster, meaning you can just say, I'm filibustering, and you didn't have to go through it like that. So, Mark, this is really interesting. I guess it means, in your opinion, if they went back simply to requiring an actual talking filibuster— that it would reduce the number of filibusters on big issues. I think it would. It, it,
2: it would. It would reduce it. It'd be better to get rid of it. You have to realize back then, uh, uh, Jim Eastland and, and Herman Talmadge. I mean, the the, the, the great lions of the South, uh, the people who who had opposed every bit of civil rights legislation were still there. Uh, and this was this was a tool that they had developed. Howard was unusual in being a liberal who, who decided to
4: try and use it. I
0: mean, Mark, thank thank you so much for that story. Francesca, what are you thinking as you hear that?
4: Well, you know, that's something that some Democrats, you know, we briefly brought up Joe Manchin before, is, have said that they would like to see there be, quote-unquote, more pain involved in the filibuster, and perhaps that would lessen the amount of filibusters it would see. But, you know, what we did hear from President Biden today You know, after all of his couching about not wanting to get rid of the traditions of the Senate, he did say, you know, I'm a fairly practical guy. And what I really want to do is get things done. And he said, if there is a complete, quote, lockdown and chaos as a consequence of the filibuster, then we'll have to go beyond what I'm talking about. And what he was talking about was, uh, you know, returning to even a a talking filibuster. And so what he does want is a a situation in where there's, you know, a 50-50 Senate where the vice president can either vote to break a tie or Republicans will get on board with his agenda. And he said in a recent interview, he really does think that that's possible, that some Republicans might as we get closer to the 2022 elections, because uh, perhaps they'd want to support some of uh, his relief bill that's more popular. Whether or not that will actually happen, uh, I'm sure we can have a longer discussion about it another day, but that is where he stands currently.
0: Fascinating. And I guess they're on a two-week Uh, recess or work in your district period now. So there's going to be some time between now and Easter for this to percolate in people's districts and senators, I guess, to come back with uh, a sense of how much risk they'll be taking by breaking the filibuster or by shrinking it. And there we end. That's this week's edition of America Are We Ready, our Thursday night call-in show. For Biden's first hundred days, thanks to White House correspondent Jonathan Lemire from the Associated Press and Francesca Chambers from McClatchy. Thank you both so much for staying up with us.
4: Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: And listeners, thanks for your ears, and of course, thanks for your calls. If you're interested, you can subscribe to my National Politics podcast, called Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. Or I'll see you back here next Thursday night. For America, are we ready?